is the only bank devoted exclusively to entrepreneurs, and we're committed to the success of women entrepreneurs and majority women-owned companies across Canada. As a proud partner of the Thrive Podcast, we're here to help you start, grow, or scale your business. Find out more at bdc.ca forward slash women today. Scotiabank is proud to co-present the Thrive Podcast for Women Entrepreneurs. Through the Scotiabank Women Initiative, Scotiabank aims to help advance women-led businesses with access to capital, education, and mentorship. To learn more, visit scotiabankwomeninitiative.com. listening to the Thrive Podcast on the Startup Canada Podcast Network, where we help women entrepreneurs to start and build thriving businesses. On the Thrive Podcast, we connect you with leading experts, entrepreneurs, and organizations that provide capital, mentorship, training, tools, and other support to help you make your vision a reality faster. This podcast is a production of Startup Canada, Canada's entrepreneurship organization, and is presented in partnership with the Business Development Bank of Canada and Scotiabank. I'm your host, Kayla Isabel, Executive Director at Startup Canada. Welcome to the show. We are thrilled to have Jody Kovitz on the show today. Jody is the founder and CEO of Move the Dial, a global movement and organization to advance the participation and leadership of all women in tech. Leveraging Jody's vision, leadership, wealth of experience, pioneering spirit, and passion for advancing the full talent pool in the new economy, Move the Dial has touched over 60,000 people at events throughout Canada, the US, the UK, and Israel. Featured in Forbes Women, Jody was recognized as an Adweek brand star in Toronto in 2018, one of Canada's 25 women of influence in 2018, one of WXN's Canada's 100 most powerful women in 2017 and 2019, and co-chaired the re-election campaign for Toronto's mayor in 2018, John Tory. Jody sits on several tech company advisory boards, the board of directors of Toronto Global and SickKids Hospital Capital Campaign Cabinet, raising $1.3 billion to transform pediatric health. Jody holds an HBA from Ivy and an LLB from Osgood Hall Law School. Jody is a connector, problem solver, and builder. Welcome to the show, Jody. Hello, delighted to be here with you today. Fantastic. So before we dive into today's conversation, Jody, what's really the one thing that you want women entrepreneurs listening to take out of our chat today? Yes, you can. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Fantastic. <that's>, Love it. <laughs> that's honestly, you know, from my perspective and, and experience, I, I, I really believe that the first step comes with the conviction that you can mm. uh, and, and being super passionate about what your vision is. And then all the rest are just details. Mm. Amazing. I love that. So walk us through your entrepreneurial journey. Where did you um, sort of land in, in gleaning those insights? Uh, walk us through your path to, to move the dial um, where you're at now uh, and sort of everything in between. That's a tiny question. <laughs> um, tiny, tiny question. Tiny question. <laughs> exactly. You know, I started my first company when I was 16. And the lesson of mm. sort of having conviction around a vision and then sort of bringing dogged execution focused to make it happen really was, you know, lived at 16 years old. I had a vision 
around creating handmade greeting cards. And this is very different, obviously, than our digital age. But I was 16 years old. I loved making art. And I discovered that these fine art hand, you know, handmade cards was a product that there was a market for. And I started to make friends with some store owners that sold cards and gifts, you know, way before the days of Amazon, when that's how we bought our gifts and cards. And I went into the shop and I made friends with the owner and I showed her some samples and she was my first customer. And that first customer around my vision of what if I could turn my passion, something I care deeply about into a business, became you know quite a significant business. I had a whole production line and I had a number of customers and I scaled it up over the period of a few years. And the story of that first business and the fact that I had a vision that I made happen through taking all the baby steps to build the business one minute at a time. And when I made a mistake, sort of pivoting and going to the right um, is what got me into Ivy. And then I, I got into Ivy and I enabled um, myself you know, through that experience to learn the skills to, to how to build things. And then I built my second thing when I was at Ivy, which was a passion project, uh, sort of a social impact um, nonprofit venture that was really around uh, inspiring university students to learn how to invest as well as to learn about multiple sclerosis and to raise money for the MS Society through what was a then novel investment competition. And I say then novel because the internet was like a year old when I was at Ivy in the year 2000 and I had a vision around this investment competition because I really had learned about compound interest for the first time at 19 years old, which felt like quite a shame. Um, and, and many other people in my position may not know about it. And I was volunteering with the MS Society on the board. My mom has MS and became passionate about finding a solution to teaching university students about how to, how, how to recognize MS. So this little concept of, oh, I have this you know, wild idea of building an investment competition online with all these married objectives and I'm going to go raise money and I'm going to put together a pitch deck and I'm going to go sell it to a sponsor and then I'm going to sell it to my friends and get them engaged and build a team and galvanize them and motivate them to make this thing happen with a VP finance and a co-chair and a VP marketing. I mean, these were my friends at Ivy who then could put it on their resume and get their jobs at Goldman Sachs, etc. So for me, that experience of yes, you can, sort of doing that in a, on a tiny scale with my card business, then doing it on a larger scale with this really impactful competition um, that ended up being, you know, promoted in the Globe and Mail and all these donors and this incredible momentum and PR made me realize that when you have a strong conviction about an idea, you're passionate about it. And then you bring like, and I literally say dogged execution focus. You, you can have the best idea in the world, but it doesn't get done unless you're extremely focused in and, and you have a plan and you literally have to push yourself forward from inside a tiny step at a time again and again and again with remarkable discipline and then it gets done. But that to me is really the difference between, you know, successful entrepreneurs and not successful entrepreneurs is the ability to not only have a vision you're passionate about, but just to get it done. And so explain to us, move the dial and, so, and where yeah. you landed with that. Mm. I will. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. So 
you know, I, in my history, I realized I love making things. And then after that thing, I had sort of summered at the Boston Consulting Group early in my career when I was at Ivy and had an incredible mentor who was like, mm -hmm. you're an entrepreneur, you're not an <laughs> BCG person. So don't come back here after, you know, and at the time it was interesting. It was my first lesson mm -hmm. in ego, right? Because, and I actually think the best entrepreneurs also you know, really can check their egos at the door. And it's not to say I haven't, you know, had to learn that lesson over and over, but we all do in our own way. But I think fantastic entrepreneurs have an abundant amount of humility. And part of that comes from knowing yourself and what your strengths are and what your flaws are. And that really, you know, you're leading from the back and the side. So in that moment, you know, recognizing I need to be in an entrepreneurial environment, the fact that I got the big sexy job and I was the only woman that got through the interview process, like who cares, right? Like that didn't really matter. It wasn't really about that. It was about what I was going to, how I was going to thrive and what environment I was going to thrive in. So I took her advice and many people would not have left the BCG job. They would have gone there, stayed there. The training was great. The money was great. I took, you know, over half a, half a pay cut to go to the startup that I went to. Um, and, but, you know, in my heart and soul, I knew long-term I wanted to build things. And so I should go learn how to do that. So I went to a company called WorkBrain, which was a tech company founded by an incredible visionary, David Ossip. And he is now the CEO of a company called Ceridian with a multiple billion dollar valuation on the New York Stock Exchange. One of our good partners at Startup companies. Canada, actually. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> so, you know, David, well, yes. So David was an early mentor and teacher to me. I was extremely lucky that I had this opportunity. I was a marketing coordinator, but really I ended up being sort of like a, you know, just a junior apprentice. And I got to learn a ton of things and got to work very closely with David. And one of the greatest gifts of David was that he didn't, uh, he didn't sit on laziness with me. He pushed me to be my best self. He saw my potential and when I would do work, he would say, no, that's shit and rip it up and give it back, you know? And like, I, that was a great gift from him because he taught me the standard of excellence that we need to strive to put our best work forward. So I fuss and fuss and fuss. Like for example, you know, I launched my new blog last week and was, and alongside my new podcast, we'll get into a bit later called Joyful Sundays. It's available on Spotify and Apple, etc. But like I rewrote my blog post about 17 times, literally 17 times. And I do that with the work that I produce because David and other mentors, when I was in law following my experience at WorkBrain, um, taught me that it really is worth putting out your best work. And he also taught me how to think global. And I think for all of our founders out there, you know, when I'm coaching founders, I bring David's advice and I coach many founders, uh, approximately eight or nine at this time, one on one. I always encourage them to make their vision bigger and, and make their vision bigger from the outset than to be extremely focused in the execution and go one bit at a time, sort of thinking about most viable product, what do you need to do to ship it? But if you start with your vision too small or too local, it's really hard to, to make it bigger later. And that's a lesson I learned from David. I'll never forget the story of David saying to me, you know, go get a PO box in Boston. And I said, why? And he said, because we're global and we need a Boston office for our IPO in three years. So like, go get it done because we need to look like we have a Boston office now. Right. And that, but that, and I'll get into what move the dial is and how we, you know, what, what the story is. And David was frankly, one of my first real sponsors that believed in me, not only sponsoring financially, but, but really leaning in and believing in me and my vision. Um, but 
I did one of my first events in San Francisco and I had many people say to me, like, why aren't you starting in Canada? You should just dominate Canada. And I was like, no, move to Dallas Global from day one, global, global, global. And then that happened and that actualized that as a result, you know, this year we were supposed to do 75 events globally. Last year we were in London and Tel Aviv and, and Lisbon and, and Japan. So like, you know, you gotta think big from the beginning. Don't limit yourself and your beliefs. And when you talk about, you know, women entrepreneurs in particular, um, you know, I, I have noticed in the difference between the women founders that I coach and the male founders that I coach, I coach many founders and the women identified founders that I coach often have more self-limited beliefs from the beginning. So I would say in terms of a practical takeaway, you know, you have to, you have to have a big vision. You have to be passionate about your vision. You need to bring dogged execution focus. But also don't limit yourself and, and your, you know, beliefs in yourself. Like you have to really um, give yourself the ability to think big. So in any event, stayed with David and worked with me for a couple of years, learned a tremendous amount. And then I ended up um, moving to Scotiabank because I met this incredible woman that I wanted to be like. Her name's Pat Krajewski. She stayed a mentor and friend for like 30 years, uh, 25 actually. And, um, you know, I went there and I learned about leadership development and how you develop great leaders. I was working on succession planning for the the bank and really thinking through how do we build a, you know, diverse executive team, including women at the top, which was really forward thinking when you think about back in 2002, 2003. And um, after working there, I had applied to law school. It had always been important to me to do further education if I had the privilege to do it, which I did. And, um, you know, I remember the moment of, of accepting, getting into law school, signing my loan papers, and off I went uh, to law school. And I did that for three years. I didn't think I would practice. I thought I would go back to business, but I fell in love with an area of law called uh, family law and really lo I loved the entrepreneurial nature of uh, the changing law at the time, particularly around reproductive law. I was fascinated by it and decided to pursue a career in family law. So then I went and practiced family law for seven years at a firm called Torkin Mains, where I learned a tremendous amount. I had an incredible mentor named Lauren Wolfson who taught me everything he knows and included in that was, um, you know, how to build a business, how to build the business of a family law practice. And I got really excited about that. I think way more excited about the building of the practice by creating a thoughtful plan that was very, you know, much broken down into small steps that was measurable, where I held myself accounting to reporting on those metrics regularly to those that were funding my business plan, all of those you know, behaviors and habits really stood me in good stead when I then built my big real company, moved the dial, because I had already learned how to set goals, how to be focused on measurement, how to keep myself focused on the plan, and got the opportunity to practice marketing and using marketing to build a brand and to develop credibility, which is a really important thing, you know, when you're trying to build a global movement. So all that to say, I also lost myself as a human being. And, uh, you know, the, the practice of family law can be quite toxic. There's lots of negative emotion. Even the most rational humans get kind of irrational when they're going through a divorce. Um, and uh, it was hard on me. I'm a high, I'm a huge empath. And, and it really, I talk about it as having destroyed my soul. I stopped working out. I stopped seeing my friends. I stopped seeing my family. And was working all the time. Would like run home, put my one-year-old daughter to bed, run back to work, work till midnight. 
And then as it happened, when my daughter was around two, I had a very large life moment. And in that moment, my daughter, uh, who's fine now, got very sick. And we spent about 75 nights at Sick Kids Hospital off and on over the course of two years when she battled 13 extremely rare infections. And one night uh, when she was, um, you know, was, um, you know, in the hospital and she had to have a treatment for a very rare disease called Kawasaki disease, she had a you know, moment and that moment that no parent ever wants to have. And in that moment, I'll never forget sort of negotiating with whatever higher power is out there. I'm Jewish, but not that religious, but I am spiritual. And I just sort of connected and I was like, whoever, whatever God or whatever higher power is out there, if Lily survives this night, I will do the big thing that I've been afraid of doing. And I will be honest with myself and leave law, which is not right for me and uh, start to build the life that is meaningful for me and is impact driven. And so she coughed, she was okay. And I decided to create the space for myself to ponder sort of the next move. So while I continued to practice law, I went to yoga every day at lunch and gave myself literally an hour and a half moving meditation to look in my own eyes, go very deep, like who is Jody? And I realized like I'm a builder in my soul. I've been building since I was 16 again and again and again. I'm a connector. I love to connect people to other people, particularly when that results in something that is beneficial to them, as well as I am a joyful revenue driver. It's something that I love is like the idea of creating something from nothing and, and setting really ambitious revenue targets as I had with my family practice. My, um, I also had another business. It was called Boobalicious Tanks and Teas. We made t-shirts to raise money for the can uh, uh, Breast Cancer Foundation and we had built it and online and all the things. Like I, I could not help myself um, you know, from building, but I, what I loved was like setting really aggressive revenue targets and achieving them. So all that said, I was super lucky. I did a cold email to the uh, chief operating officer at a company called Osler. It's a law firm um, in cross border. I'm sure you're familiar with them and startup ecosystem. I reached out to Ruth. I asked her for coffee to hear her story. We went for coffee. She told me her story. She asked me for mine. I was prepared with my little pitch of who I am, revenue builder, connector builder. Um, and she was like, how about you come work here? And so I ended up going to Osler as one of their early strategic business development hires, leaving my litigation practice. And, you know, I had this moment where my mentor looked at me when I left and it was really hard to leave because he'd invested so much time in me and I was kind of going to be the succession plan. And he was like, I'm so sad you're leaving. And I know that this is the right thing for you because this is following your heart and you're so good with people and building and business and go do that. And I went there for five years and I had the incredible fortune of working with wonderful people. Chad Bain, who runs the emerging market practice. You know, I learned a tremendous amount from him about technology, and that's actually what inspired me to join the tech ecosystem. Colleen Moorhead, who is my boss and who is a mentor and incredible champion of mine who taught me everything she knows about how to do you know, B2B sales, enterprise sales, relationship building, stakeholder management, make a big vision, go get it. Um, you know, and I, my job was really to help fill you know, the, the, the pipeline for the future of their litigation business, which is a very significant part of their business. They were disrupting the business. I coached and worked with, you know, hundred lawyers, lots of associates on how to build accretive business plans, helped to create our alumni program and sort of got engaged in the tech ecosystem, which my brother also, who's Michael Katchen, the founder of Wellsimple. So between sort of watching my brother build, start and build Wellsimple, getting to know Chad and the tech ecosystem, I decided I wanted to be in it. 
because it was exciting and moving. And, and, and I also sort of was ready for my next challenge, having acquired a ton of skills at, at Osler, but that was not my long-term plan. So got a call from an organization called, at the time, Ace Tech Ontario. It's currently PeerScale, which is a peer-to-peer, -peer, awesome peer-to-peer -peer organization for CEOs of SaaS um, software as a service technology businesses, as well as heads of functions. And they were looking for a CEO at the time to help shape the future of the organization. And they were excited by my passion and energy and kind of floats off the page and they believed in my vision and they hired me. And it was an incredible experience. I was there for, you know, about 18 months, a year, yeah, over a year, maybe 18 months. And, you know, in my tenure, did develop the strategy, you know, and also, you know, uh, recognized that they had a thriving, you know, membership. Um, and, you know, I'm a builder. They, they, you know, at the time, I felt they really needed someone who was awesome at managing relationships and, and existing relationships. Um, and so I was thrilled to build the strategy. But what happened at the same time was I also saw that there was a lack of diverse um, members of the membership table. There was like, you know, uh, it, it, there was the composition. I'm going to reframe that. I also know, cut that last sentence and replace, please. Here's a sentence. I noticed early on at my first meeting, actually, that there, most of the members seem to come from one lived experience, you know, just to say it, you know, we've seen a lot in the tech ecosystem about a whole bunch of like 40 year old white guys. And that's what was going on, you know, and there was not a lot of um, different people that were part of the organization or in the room. And I saw that as a massive opportunity for the organization. Like the first first seed of Move the Dial was like, oh, I have a growth mandate. I need to get more members. I should bring members that don't just look the same and, you know, make this a, a richer discussion and environment for having had many different lived experiences at the table. I remember there being like one black person in the room and this man was like an incredible man and had so much to offer. But like, how is it that in 2000 and it was uh, 16, like out of 140 people, there's like literally one black person in the room. Like that just felt like not reflective of the society we live in. And that was an opportunity for me in the organization. And I also felt it was a really neat opportunity for that organization, which had a ton of leaders in the ecosystem to drive change in the ecosystem at large in Canada. And how about we be the voice that says we need to have more leaders in tech. We don't see uh, enough people from different backgrounds. We also do not see any women around here. Let's move the dial. And that literally was like seed one. And then I got, had the great fortune of going uh, to Israel with the mayor of Toronto and about 50 tech leaders because someone went out of his way, which is the title of my book, Go Out of Your Way, um, which is all available on Amazon or on our uh, Shopify store at movedal.com for purchase, which is really about this concept of if you go out of your way and lend your privilege or share your energy through generosity of spirit, you can open doors actively for those that need to go through. Now, folks need to know what to do when you're on the other side of the door. Like, it's not meant to be charity. It, these are incredibly capable humans we need to help lift up and create opportunities for. But when you have a largely male-dominated white tech ecosystem, you need to go out of your way actively to change it. It's a conscious choice. And so a, a friend, Jared Tessis, who worked with a VC, picked up the phone. It took him literally two minutes. But... He had to choose to use his relationship capital to say, 
I know you don't know Jody. She's been in tech for 20 years since she was at Workbrain or whatever, however many years it had been, 12 or whatever. But I know her. I believe in her. Put her on the bus because if you do, she'll make things happen. You, but you got to give her the chance. And based on his recommendation, going out of his way, I got on the bus. Now, I had to know how to work that bus once I got there and show my own agency and, and make use of the opportunity, which I did. But I never would have gotten on the bus but for that go out of your way dial moving moment. And from that moment, I was inspired to pay that energy of generosity of spirit forward. And so when I was on the bus and in Israel, metaphorically, so to speak, I heard these awesome uh, women share their story of having built their fund. It was called I Angels, and they had raised tons of money, like hundreds of millions of dollars in their fund, where folks from around the world could invest in the fund and, and through the fund invest in the startup ecosystem in Israel which was lucrative, but hard to know how do you pick one if you're sitting as an accredited investor in Canada. So I love the idea. And I said, they said they were going to New York to like raise 50 million. I said, why don't you start in Toronto? I will help you. I'll make a little event. And then I was like, sort of had told the mayor at the time, I'm going to do something to amplify what you had done here. I, I'm not sure he believed me then. Now he believes me. I co-chaired his campaign when he got, you know, got elected. I'm kind of a, a get shit done girl and he knows that. Mm -hmm. But you know, at that time, he's like, uh, who are you? And I don't even believe what you're saying. But anyway, <laughs> I did it. And I had this little idea to have an event where we would showcase those women from Israel to put some VCs in the room to give them some money to help them uh, to showcase like the city of Toronto and what they had done and what we could learn from the Israel ecosystem, because there was a lot of great lessons, including, you know, they are about ecosystem first in Israel. So we would go around on our little bus to 50 different places. And before they would talk about their you know incubator or their startup they would talk about israel and why they're thriving in israel as an ecosystem and i thought that was a massive lesson we could bring back which we did by the way and we started pounding on our chest much louder about how amazing toronto and canada are as ecosystems and 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 i believe that our collective efforts inspired by that you know having had 50 tech leaders on that bus um, dramatically changed where Toronto was placed actually globally in terms of not the talent, but are telling the story better about the talent. Um, and in any event, that was a side note. And also showcasing women founders and tech leaders in our ecosystem, just being their awesome selves, you know, but they happen to be women and not complaining about how hard it is to be a woman and how shitty, just get up and show your great work. And, and that little event, which by the way, when the girls, the women in Israel, you know, called me, I remember I was walking and talking to them on my cell phone in Jerusalem. They're like, why would you do that for us? Like, you don't even know us. And I said, I just want to move the dial for you. And like, that is how the name Move the Dial came to life. But the sentiment is I'm going to go out of my way to help you because we must go out of our way. It doesn't just like fall down on our lap that we create a more inclusive ecosystem. So that little event was going to be 30 people. I, uh, you know, wanted to partner with all the orgs in the ecosystem and reached out to Communitech and Mars and DMZ and Ryerson, all the places and sort of said, and next Canada, like, will you partner with me on this event? And everybody said, like, we don't have any money. It's Christmas. We don't have any time. But like, if you want our logo, you can have it. And that I was like, yes, give me the logo. Let me do it. You know, some people were a little more, you know, helpful than others. But you know, it was all about we win as an ecosystem. And I'm sharing that specifically because I think that is still true, particularly as we're coming out of a global pandemic, as we're sort of confronted with the, sorry, the reality and the moment of, you know, um, significant anti-black racism. Like we have to come together 
as a technology ecosystem in order to rise together. And so this concept of community and partnership and working together was really important. And it wasn't actually going on as much in the ecosystem four years ago as it is now. I think we, you know, to our credit, I think we have really come together as a technology ecosystem to support one another's initiatives, to work together actively, but then it was not the case. And so what happened as a result of this partnership win-win behavior and all these orgs that came together and all these incredible leaders that really supported, like I'll never forget, Ben Zifkin was like, what do you need? Uh, and I was like, money. And so he's like, okay. you know. And he had offered to fund a, a little dinner for some women in tech if that was an idea. And that turned into like, you know, a dinner for 200 and you know, $10,000 or something. So, you know, but like he just did it, right? And there was people like that that believed in my vision and mission from the very beginning. And as a result of this partnership attitude, you know, I sent out the invitation on December 23rd and hustled with my small team at Ace Tech to make it happen, like literally like beg, borrow, steal. My brother gave me the, the use of a developer uh, and a designer from uh, Wealthsimple to help me make a, a, a first logo, which was hashtag move the dial, you know, on a little invitation. And that invitation resulted in uh, a thousand people responding and signing up for this event, which got moved from Well Simple to Mars, and we had to hustle around and get a bunch of money. And that sentiment around move the dial of the community coming together, like never really left, and is still there today, even though we paused operations during the pandemic. But so from that moment, the next, you know, I, I saw the momentum. I put an op-ed in the paper. I invited whoever wanted to help. We need to move the dial. It's 2017. Like, why are there so few women in tech? It's not acceptable. We need to advance the participation uh, and leadership of women in tech. And we got to do it with a positive um, sentiment. And we need to do it together. And we need to do it with generosity. And like, who wants to help? And 50 leaders came the next day to help. We had a brainstorm. We ended up creating a strategy. I'll never forget Sabrina Jeremiah, like literally writing the strategy with her fingers in the Google straw dog that was at a meeting hosted by Colleen Moorhead at Osler, right? And there was tons of people from PwC and 20 different startups and it was incredible. And so we started and we did about five pilots, including, you know, an event deeply focused, deeply focused on career sponsorship that we held at, uh, we held the event, uh, I'll never forget, at um, McKinsey. It was sponsored by Ceridian, David spoke at it. Uh, and, and as we move on, um, you know, that, that became my passion. And then by the time that we got to, you know, later in that year, September, I was asked by uh, Razor um, Suleiman to help create Elevate, which I did. Um, you know, the mayor's office was thrilled to have moved the sentiment of, um, you know, the value of we win together and that diversity is our strength in Canada and Toronto. So I was very involved in the conceptualization and, and launching of, of Elevate. I spoke um, on that stage, um, was given that opportunity by Razor. And you, you know, you talk about dial moving, like he, he didn't have to put me on the stage, right? He did. And then I got to tell my story to 3,000 people. Um, and one of those people was my business partner, Jeff Fettis, who founded a company out of Winnipeg, you know, about 20 years ago, that's a call center business. And he, you know, had some capital and he loves to help mission driven entrepreneurs. He saw me speak and he was like, your passion is just, you have to do this. You, this has to be your thing. And I said, but I can't, I'm a 41 year old single mother. Like I can't, what do you mean do this? And he was like, if you didn't have to worry, if you failed, if you could go do it and I would fund, um, you know, what your vision is, uh, would you do it? And I said, yes. And he said, okay, go build a plan. 
And so that was in 2017. Yeah. And I, I did, I built the plan. Um, I was so fortunate. I have an incredible, um, friend, Lean Lee, who's the CFO at Wealthsimple, dear friend, more like a com- complete co-founder of Move It Out, helped me with everything, every step from building the model to pitching it to Jeff, to Jeff saying to her, I can't put a one hole in your assumption, um, any of your assumptions. And then, you know, as a result of that, I, I realized it was time for me to move on uh, from peer scale. Ace Tech, we changed the name is one of the things we did when I was there. Um, and leave it in, in their capable hands and move on and build my passion. And it was scary as uh, anything I've ever done in my life to take that leap from concept to idea, which then, you know, you had to, I had to take this big passion for changing the world and actually translate it into a business plan because like, that's the only way to get shit done is they have to like make a plan and execute it doggedly. So I, you know, created the plan Jeff was on board, raised half a million dollars of seed capital, and and off we went. And that was in uh, late 2017 to really start in January 2018 with a bold vision, and and you know did that. And then from then grew the team from zero, like me, to uh, to 23 people as of March 2020, before uh, COVID 19 hit. We had plans this year to to do 75 events around the world. We had only over 20 corporate partners. We've been building a technology platform that's focused on impactful mentorship um, that would you know, ultimately become a community platform, but start with a B2B model to enable companies to, to impactfully mentor their you know, high potential uh, and often most underestimated talent to rally the senior leaders around them to really move the dial actually in the organizations. And, you know, I was super joyful and proud of what my team accomplished. And, and, and it wasn't just the team, you know, it was incredible advisors and partners who believed in what we were doing in the community of, you know, over 60,000 people that we touched in just a couple of short years through our programs and, you know, had a big, bold vision. And, and that vision uh, is is on pause because you obviously we couldn't do live events and our revenue model was moving towards a tech platform, but was still based in in live events. And so I had no choice but to responsibly pause operations and help my team find other jobs. But the movement lives on and the passion and support I have felt from our corporate partners, from the many champions and advisors and from my former team is is incredible. And, And I bring abundant joy to being able to share with you the entrepreneurial journey. Mm. Wow. What a story, Jody. My goodness. (laughs) That is what, what a path, what an incredible, you know, journey of, of uh, what I love the most about it is the self-awareness that you've had this, this whole time and holding yourself accountable and, and really, um, you know, making gutsy moves, but knowing when you need to move on is also really interesting and seeing in this, this path pre move the dial. Um, but just your, your commitment and energy that you've clearly brought to every one of your endeavors is, is really incredible. What a fantastic entrepreneur journey. Thank you. Thank you. So Jody, in looking at, um, you know, over the last couple of months, obviously, uh, all of our environments have shifted so dramatically. Can you walk us through, you know, how COVID-19 uh, impacted Move the Dial? You mentioned it briefly, but um, how did you come to that decision? What are you, uh, what considerations did you make in shifting and pivoting sort of during COVID-19? So the initial response that we had was similar to many of our, you know, my peers, like move our team home remote, come up with a pivot. We did come up with a pivot. We came up with incredible ideas for a robust, you know, digital platform of events and and even as much as a, a digital summit. 
But at the time, which was, you know, in March, I felt, um, you know, we had built an incredibly strong community and brand and experience um, of interacting and connecting with the community through what our platform had been. And I wasn't confident that we could replicate that through the digital experience, even though there've been tons of, you know, incredibly uh, powerful digital experiences. What I was going to say is, yeah, I mean, I just, I, you know, even though we had some incredible ideas, I really wanted to, to keep the integrity of the move the dial experience and the move the dial offering, um, rather than, you know, be trying to offer virtual programs that I would, wasn't sure would have incredible impact in the same way. And, you know, also because our strategy, you know, I had a, a we were a high growth organization at a very high burn, which is relevant to an entrepreneurial audience. And I also really wanted to bring a sense, you know, an inclusive approach to how we moved through the pandemic. And so I couldn't keep everyone, um, you know, the burn was just too high. And so I, you know, I made the decision to pause all of us so that I could think deeply about how we wanted to emerge and uh, not be in a position where I, you know, let let go, you know, 80% of the team and only kept 5% or 10%. It didn't feel, didn't feel, you know, um, true to the ethos of who we were. And I also was not confident that we could quickly enough come up with a strategy that would enable us to deliver on the promises we had made to our partners um, and deliver on their KPIs mm -hmm. virtually, because so much of the work that we were doing was focused on, you know, driving forward uh, systemic change, as well as helping our partners focus on recruiting and, and talent engagement um, and, you know, really um, we're very focused on delivering those that high quality KPI and experience for our partners and I didn't want to do sort of a okay job so the pause really made sense um, from from that from all of those perspectives as painful as it was and it was and is still extremely painful when you build a thing and are growing it with massive momentum um, you know and there's a lot there's a lesson right if I could do over I would say, you know, to, to founders, having a diversified revenue strategy is really important. So we focused on live events mm -hmm. and sponsorship of events and corporate partnerships with in-person activations. We were building a long-term sustainable revenue model through technology, um, as well as, you know, building out other forms of new revenue streams mm -hmm. that we were, but, you know, focused on building this year to start executing on in 2021 really to enable the sustained and controlled growth to enable, you know, that risk mitigation and, and deliver on some of the services that we were being asked for. Initially, I said, no, I'm not going to build a consulting business because I had a great partner in Feminuity to deliver it. And I wanted to focus on doing what we were doing really well. But if I could do a do over, I would say that diversification of revenue strategy has never been more important, um, especially if you're trying to build an org that serves ecosystem and community and and you know want need needs to be able to sustain 
um, unprecedented times like global pandemics, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great lesson for for everyone to be thinking of moving forward. Um, how can you you diversify your revenue strategies and make sure that you're a bit more bulletproof in the event of some type of economic collapse or just impact in general? Um, having that um, diversified revenue sort of strategy and outline that you've even thought through this during this time that you may be pausing operations. Um, but uh, I think it's a, a really unique time to be able to reassess um, and make intentional decisions moving forward and how you're going to potentially rebuild your businesses for those of our listeners that are in that position. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so looking, I think there's there's so much advice and so many pieces of feedback that are layered into your, stern, your story as an entrepreneur um, and seeing how you've been navigating the last couple of months. Uh, what key additional pieces of advice would you share for other women entrepreneurs um, at this time, but also looking to the, the future of their businesses? You know, going bold, thinking global. Um, does that advice still stand true? What, what are your key pieces of advice you'd like um, to, to give women entrepreneurs who are listening today? Yeah, I mean, I think number one is you know, believe in yourself. And that is where it mm. starts. And nobody can do that for you. So we people need to mm-hmm. go out of their way to support you in connecting, you know, you to capital and customers and opportunities for profile, which are all really important pieces of what it takes to successfully scale your business. But it's really has to start with you. And so actually, you know, one of the greatest lessons I can share is like before I was able to go build Move the Dial, I did a, so much work on myself, a ton of mm. work on my mindset, on my heart set, on my soul set, which is actually like um, a set of terms that somebody I've studied for a long time, uh, Robin Sharma, talks a lot about those concepts. Mm. It, it doesn't just like fall in your lap that you believe in yourself and you have the bravery muscle and the courage to go get it. That, that is something you have to manifest and create, I believe, actively, and it's a practice. So I meditate, for example, I journal. I've always spent time with coaches and you know, um, others around me, advisors, to help me shape my vision, keep believing in myself. You have to have the habit of having people in your life that are healthy and cut out the toxic people and people that don't believe in you or, or tell you to stand down. I, I had that, I had someone you know, early on in this, who was actually quite close to me, who said, well, you know, you're not a woman in tech, like you've been out of tech for a long time, like, why are you doing this? Maybe you should just stand down. And I Mm. actually, this was after my first event, you know, I felt terrible. I didn't get out of bed for three days. I was feeling really down on myself. I was doubting myself. And had I not done the work on myself for like 10 years actively of really understanding that I had to motivate my own Mm -hmm. self and I had to go deep and pick myself up and I have so much to love about myself and believe in myself I never would have kept going with move the dial move the dial would have ended with one event and not impacted the over 60,000 people that have been touched by our work or you know the many many thousands literally thousands of emails I've gotten from people saying this movement changed my life Mm. you know and so that moment of self-doubt is you, you got to overcome it and you got to go deep and look in the mirror and doing that work constantly and consistently as an entrepreneur is absolutely mm-hmm. critical. Second of all, I would say, practically speaking, I think, you know, having that bravery muscle, Reshma Sajani, who's a great hero and friend to me, you know, really talks a lot about brave, not perfect. We started Move the Down ethos of like, done is better than perfect. And so, yes, I believe in the production of super high quality work and fussing until it's excellent and mm. done is better than perfect. So you got to start and you got to get to 80% and then you got to iterate and keep going and make it more and more and more perfect. But if you don't start, 
and take the first step, you'll never know. And if you try to get it perfect before you take the first step, like I promise you never will. So that's, you know, the next piece of advice that I would give. I would say once you're going, okay, as an entrepreneur, as a CEO, people ask me like, what was like, you know, what, what are the two greatest, you know, skills or piece of advice you have for any entrepreneur in the midst of scaling? Okay. And I would say, okay, well, three, one is have the humility to know what you don't know and find people better and smarter and more experienced than you at those things and bring them very close. And that is absolutely critical. Without Lean Lee, who is a finance guru who could help me with, you know, building a, a business plan and doing checks and balances, like I literally never could have built Move the Dial from the beginning. And then the team members that I had with me, you know, around me between Chris Lang and Joanne Deasy and all these people that I had around me, Corey Cap, like I had this incredible team around me. And each of the individuals on my team brought a skill set that I didn't have. So like A, have the humility to know what you don't know and surround yourself with an incredible team. B, you really need to learn to lead with empathy. And and empathy as a as a quality and as a way of living for me was absolutely key to the movement becoming relevant to more than just women that have my own lived experience. So listening to so many others, I had incredible advisors right from day one, Yvonne Doniker, Jessica Yamoa, black women who believed in me, even though I'm a white, super privileged woman who said, we know you are very early on your inclusion journey and you have a whole bunch to learn, but we're gonna believe in you and teach you. From you know that moment till the end, no, not the end, but when we were at our global summit, you know, looking around the room and basically seeing 50% of the stage of 120 speakers were black and 50% of the audience were members of the black community and there's a hundred black youth there. And like that happened with great intention, but it required a great deal of self-awareness and empathy and, and not just once, like I'm not patting myself on the back. You have to keep coming back to empathy. Empathy is a muscle. You have to exercise it. You have to learn it. You have to listen. You have to go deeply. You need to learn. And, but people often ask me, how did it happen that Move the Dial became much more relevant and never perfect? This is, we've got to do this journey forever. I am a white, highly privileged, cisgender, heterosexual woman who was leading a movement trying to make it relevant for all women. Like, I will be on a forever journey to try to understand, I'll never understand, but listen and be part of solving for how we make an equitable tech environment for all humans. But it was empathy and the exercise of that muscle of empathy and the listening and the learning and the building of trust, which can only happen through deep empathy that enabled me to, to build a team that was more reflective of the population as well as a community. So I would really encourage uh, any leader building a business not to only spend time on your revenue and your business plan and your customers and your VCs work on yourself and develop a deep sense of empathy, which really will help you when you're building your team, leading your team, and even understanding the needs of your customers on the deepest level, which is how you can amaze and delight those customers and not only get them, but keep them, which is absolutely critical in sort of the renewals and, and the growth of your customer relationships are your greatest asset. So number two is empathy. Um, the last, you know, mm. Yeah, the, la the last piece of advice I want to share, people often like, you know, ask what makes a successful CEO. And there's so many qualities that I could go into um, around what I think a successful leader looks like. But there's a skill, I believe, too few founders focus on sharpening and it, that it is absolutely critical to the success of a CEO. And that is 
learning the ability to compartmentalize and, and bring 100% focus to whatever task it is that you're doing. And that is the only way for me, you know, when you, when I look back, I mean, there's many things I had to get right and many things I got wrong, but many things I had to get right along the way to scale quickly, you know, from zero to 23 employees from, you know, uh, the, 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 you know, massive revenue, um, you know, trajectory that we had to move that as fast as I did it, it, you really have to be able to bring full focus and attention to task A and then task B. And because you're going to have hundreds of people, thousands sometimes, and I've experienced that pulling at you, they send you an email. They think you should respond because they sent you an email. They send you a text because you didn't respond to the email Then they call you. And they want a meeting and they want a meeting and they want a meeting and your employee needs you and your employee's knocking and your employee's texting and your employee's slacking, but you have to get done this particular pitch for your investor or a board deck and you got to get it done. And you have to chart your own schedule and create the space for yourself to be 100% focused in the compartments of what you need to get done as a CEO. And nobody's going to tell you what those things are. So you really need to learn how to prioritize and manage your time like it is the most precious asset that you have. Now, you also need to make yourself available to your employees and your team and your community and show up mm-hmm. and lean in. But I really, really encourage you know any CEO listening to this who's struggling with time management to bring a lot of time and energy to understanding how to manage your time and manage your energy and be super focused on what your own jobs are and priorities are as a CEO. There's a book that I read. It's called Deep Work. It changed my life. It was recommended to me by one mm. of my mentors, Steve Irvine, who founded Integrate. Um, I'm reading it right now, actually. That's so funny. <laughs> mm. I think th- those pieces of advice are so important, Jody. So, you know, having humility and knowing what you don't know, and that's not a sign of weakness, but a sign of, of complete self-awareness and leveraging the skill sets of others, um, as opposed to trying to be all things to all people at all times. Um, learning to lead with empathy, now more important than ever. Absolutely could not agree more. Um, and I love this piece about learning the ability to compartmentalize and focus um, and giving yourself permission for that deep focus and that deep work. Um, because that that's really, um, you know, as an executive and as, as somebody who's leading an organization um, where your brain power needs to be invested most. So I those three areas resonate me, with me, uh, particularly also in, in my sort of leadership journey. Um, but other lessons, you know, that we've talked about today, get going out of your own way, using your relationship capital, um, really supporting others within the ecosystem, because we are all working together and we win as an ecosystem if our um, you know, members are represented and supported effectively. Um, and just having this unshakable confidence in yourself. Um, I think that at, a, at the core of everything that we all need to be doing work um, to build our own trust in ourselves and our belief that is unshakable in our ability to do great things. Uh, so thank you so much for, for joining us on the Thrive Podcast today, Jody. My absolute pleasure. And please tune in to my podcast, Joyful Sundays. You can get it on Spotify, um, download it, comment, subscribe. I'm interviewing some awesome leaders on how we want to emerge differently from the pandemic. So I started with Arlen Hamilton, an incredible VC. I'll be uh, releasing um, you know, a whole bunch of great interviews with incredible leaders and, and people who are in our startup, startup ecosystem in Canada, including Michelle Romano coming out soon. Have a listen. And uh, thanks so much for having me. Amazing. Thanks, Jody. 
Thank you for joining us this week on the Thrive Podcast, where we help women entrepreneurs to start and build thriving businesses. Thank you to the Startup Canada production team, BDC, and Scotiabank for helping us to power women entrepreneurs. Visit startupcan.ca forward slash women to download the playbook Resources for Women Entrepreneurs with a comprehensive list of support for you and your business. Visit startupcan.ca for the latest episodes of the Startup Canada podcast hosted by Matthew Curtis and plug in to the Startup Canada network. Until next time, I'm Kayla Isabel. It's time to thrive.